Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Cafecito con Estrellita. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hola mi gente. Welcome back to Cafecito con Estrellita. I hope you're doing well today. Now mi gente, I just wanted to let you all know that this is our last interview episode for season two of Cafecito con Estrellita. Now, I promise you it's not the last. We just need a couple weeks off from uploading over here on our podcast side to continue working on behind the scenes content, to continue interviewing and just meeting other people virtually, of course, because of the pandemic, to then put together the best season three that we could possibly do because we're all about growing here, mi gente, and we all just want to make sure that we give you the best content possible. Now, I am so honored to present our interviewee, Valerie, the founder of Latina Grad Guide. Now, mi gente, this episode, she gives so much, much, many, ah, just so many gems. Now, mi gente, a little more background about Valerie. She also attended community college in the L.A. County graduated with her bachelor's degree at UCLA, then received her master's degree at Cal State Long Beach, and is now in her PhD program, has been here in Southern California. And mi gente, I'm just going to go ahead and let the episode speak for itself, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for the kind introduction, Estrella. In addition to my academic accomplishments, I'm also the proud granddaughter and daughter of Salvadoran immigrants and the eldest of four siblings. I am very family oriented and being an older sister is probably one of my most salient identities and proudest accomplishments. Everything I do, I do with my sisters in mind. And I love that. And mi gente, me and Valerie were actually talking before we hit record that I also have sisters. So I resonate with that so much with her because not only is academia important to us and representation, but it really also stems back down to la familia. Because when us as women are empowered by other amazing mujeres in our families, it can really take us a long way. And earlier I had asked Valerie what kind of role did she feel her family and her sisters and any of her other guardians played in regards to helping her feel motivated to go through higher education and whatnot? So Valerie, what would you like to share about mm -hmm. that, my dear? Well, we can start when I was younger. I grew up in a multi-generational home, which means that at any time there were up to like 15 people living at my grandparents' house. And I was surrounded by all of my aunts and uncles and cousins, very empowered and strong mujeres in my family. My youngest aunt or my dad's youngest sister actually went to college here in the U.S. She graduated from Cal State Long Beach with a bachelor's degree in business administration. And I think she really paved the way for all of my cousins and I to pursue higher education. And while my parents didn't necessarily know about higher education or how to help us navigate the application processes. We always knew that we were going to college because my aunt went to college. And that really pushed me, at least, to continue my education and to continue my family's legacy of pursuing uh, higher education here in the U.S. And I 
completely admire that, especially as a first-generation college student, because we all know this, and maybe you can agree with me, but I feel like you can. Being the first one to start anything in your family can feel a little nerve-wracking. What do you think of that? Yeah, it was very challenging being the first in my family, at, at least in my immediate family, to pursue higher education, because like I said, I didn't really have the guidance within my own family to pursue higher education, but I also wasn't tracked in high school as a college-bound student. So I didn't really get any sort of guidance or support from any of the counselors or teachers at my high school. So I really had to learn all of that on my own. I really had to navigate the college application process by myself. And I remember when I graduated from high school, I had been admitted to a few colleges, but they were out of state and they were way too expensive for me. And so I decided that I would go to my local community college first and then transfer to a four-year institution. And so I remember walking on campus at my local community college and the line to see an advisor was like outside of the building And I felt very overwhelmed in that moment. Like I didn't know what I was doing and I couldn't even get the support that I needed because there were these long lines on campus. And so I kind of wandered around campus until I came across the career counseling center. And I thought to myself, like, I need support with my classes and enrolling in college. This is a career counseling center, but they're counselors. So they might know how to help me. And so I walked in, there wasn't a line. And the counselor that I met with that day remained my counselor, even until after I graduated from my community college and went to transfer to a four-year institution. We, we remained in contact all of those years. And she was also a critical person in my academic trajectory. That is amazing. And I actually resonate so much with you on that because my community college mentor, actually, him and his wife, I still am in close contact to till this day. And they still assist me with letters of recs. That's how I'm like in my grad program now. Mm -hmm. And they still give me like tips on career, career, like, you know, where I would like to go after I graduate with my higher education degree and whatnot. So I think that's awesome that we can both relate with that because there's other students that they may then have like the idea like, oh, it is, it is awesome. And it's fine to be able to like continue on professional relationships with professors or other community college faculty members past the community college level. So I think that's amazing. And it really seemed that that counselor impacted your life in a very positive way and also helped motivated you. Did that counselor, as well as the motivation and that was given to you by your familia, did that all kind of help you develop and just, you know, create Latina Grad Guide? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a very supportive family. And I remember when I was think of, thinking about my own academic trajectory and some of the challenges that I encountered when I was transferring and even when I was applying to graduate school, I thought to myself, this process shouldn't be that hard for other students. And these barriers that I encountered shouldn't even exist. There should be support for mujeres who are interested in pursuing higher education and specifically graduate and professional studies. And so then I began thinking about creating something, a platform, a website, even a nonprofit to support mujeres 
who want to pursue graduate or professional studies. And when I told this to my family, everyone was super excited and super willing to help. And they have um, a lot of the content that I've created initially, I ran by all of my cousins, like they approved of all of the content and the color scheme and the logos and everything that I did initially, they supported. And that's amazing. I I love that part, especially with the whole helping you b- pick the color scheme and how everything should go out with the website, because I did a very similar thing with my siblings and my mom. Like, it's funny because I always FaceTime my mom, especially because I'm currently living super far away from her at the mm-hmm. moment. And when I FaceTime her, a lot of her conversations go back to what should I do for the podcast? What should I put on the website? And then it just, it keeps going and going. And I think that's amazing that you've been able to put, be able to receive your family's feedback in such a positive way to then also make it more relatable for other Latinx students that are just really trying to feel heard. Now, based on everything you have shared, I can see and understand, once again, your family really, really has allowed you to have a voice. And I think that is such a precious thing. And on your website for Latina Grad Guide, you have a section where it's full of testimonios and you allow grad students to send you blog material about them speaking about their experiences and whatnot. And I want to ask, do you, or when you were thinking about creating these testimonials or asking for these testimonials to be like, you know, given and whatnot, was it because you also wanted to allow grad students to feel heard? Yeah, definitely. And I also wanted to provide a platform where other Latina mujeres could share their stories. I use testimonio in my own research as well. So testimonio is a methodological approach that emerged from Latin American human rights struggles. And it's a tool to document the oppressive realities of marginalized communities. And so when I was thinking about developing my platform, I was also thinking about the research that I engage in and how I could kind of merge the work that I do in terms of my academic and scholarly um, interests with my social media platform. And I think that by women sharing their testimonials, the challenges and struggles that they've encountered in higher education, they could show other women that despite all of those challenges that they can still pursue higher education. No, of course. And I myself, I have related with quite a few of the testimonials that you have on the website. And I think it is really such a good reminder for Latina women. And I wanted to ask, Latina Grad Guide, if you could could just put it in one sentence, how would you describe the objective? In one sentence. Or two, or a paragraph? (laughs) I would say that Latina Grad Guide is a social impact venture that seeks to support mujeres interested in graduate or professional studies. Like very broadly, my goal is to empower, to build a community of support and to celebrate the achievements of mujeres in higher education. Do you feel as if a lot of your mujeres that stay up to date with Latina Grad Guide, are they first generation students, most of them? Most of them, yeah. I'd say maybe all of the women that I interact with on our social media uh, platform are first generation women. Oh, of course. And Valerie, I just have to ask, how how do you do it? Like, 
you work so hard in your PhD degree. You work hard out, outside of the academia life to stay connected with your family and yet still stay active on your social media platform for Latina Grad Guide. How do you do it? Yeah, I have to say that it's actually very hard to find work-life-school balance. And I don't even know if that's if anyone has achieved that, please let me know because I haven't. And it's hard to balance, especially your family. I remember during my first few quarters here at university in my PhD program, um, missing a lot of family events because I was here at school. I had a lot of things that I needed to do, whether it was papers or my own research or things with Latina Grad Guide, that I wouldn't go home very often. And I noticed that I started to feel not like myself. I was feeling very homesick and very sad. I think that first quarter, especially like I cried so many times just because I was missing my family. And I think now, now that I'm in my second year of my program, I've learned that my family is everything. And even though I am a PhD student and that this is a very important part of who I am, it's not the most important part. And for me, like being a sibling, being a daughter, a cousin, those identities supersede my identity of being a doctoral student. And so sometimes I'm okay with, I'm okay with that. Yeah. No, of course. And you are very multifaceted and you are so good at it. And I just appreciate the fact that you, you can see, because I can see it too, that familia and having not having to put school and your professional life as your number one identity. Because for a very long time, up until I hit grad school, when I did my entire education system before grad school, um, I felt like I would only relate myself as a college student. Like that was my only identity. And it wasn't until like life kept going and I started to just experience more things where it's like, no, family is important. And I would find myself just, you know, same thing, crying. I miss them. And well, I, I think it's just, it's a beautiful thing to be able to say that, you know, family's important and that they are your number one supporters, especially when you take the time to also explain to them your journey, because I'm sure your academic journey, your professional journey is a bit foreign to your older family members, like your elders and whatnot. So I'm sure they have questions that they like to ask you. And then when you answer them, I imagine they feel very orgullosos, verdad? Mm -hmm. They do. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. No, yeah. And I think that's awesome. And I could just see in the smile of your face that that you can confirm with this. And I think that's a, such a beautiful thing. And I wanted to ask, once again, going back to your family, since you are so close to them and you are such an educated and empowering woman, how could you say that your Salvadorian culture intertwines with your dissertation work right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this already, but I didn't really start thinking about or exploring my Salvadoran identity or my Salvadoran background until I was in college, until I was an undergraduate student. And I think when we were talking beforehand, I mentioned this story about being five years old and overhearing my grandpa kind of recount some of the traumatic experiences my family experienced in El Salvador before coming to the U.S. And in that moment, I felt 
as a five-year-old, really interested in learning more about El Salvador and my family's migration story. Um, but I was also five years old at the time. And so there were other things that were occupying my interests. And it wasn't until I was an undergraduate student at UCLA when I took a class, a Chicana Latino studies class on Central Americans in the U.S. that I really, that was the first time I ever saw myself or my community in an academic space like that. And that class was extremely transformative. I think the final project asked us to complete like a unique or yeah, it, we had the leeway to do whatever we wanted for that final project. And what I did is that I interviewed my aunts and uncles about their experiences in El Salvador. And that was the first time that as an adult, I had heard their story and what prompted them to come to the U.S. And that's when I really felt like I was connected to my identity as a Salvadoran here in the U.S. And that really prompted me to continue doing research about El Salvador, the Civil War, which is what prompted my family to come here to the U.S. And I think now as a graduate student, my research focus is looking at the experiences of Central American students or students of Central American descent in higher education and how they navigate the bureaucracies of higher ed in the U.S. to be successful. Wow. Just so mind-blown about how all that came together, but that just goes to show that your culture really is of importance to you and the work that you do. So I wanted to ask if it's okay. Mm -hmm. Based on the, from what you do remember as a five-year-old, because again, you know, playtime was a little more important mm -hmm. to us at that time. <laughs> when, whenever your guardians had brought up that story, was it during the time frame of the Salvadorian war? La Guerra Civil? Yeah, my family lived through the, the Salvadoran Civil War. They migrated to the U.S. in 1981 in March. So I want to say that that was the beginning of the Salvadoran Civil War, but there was still a lot of social strife before like the official start of the war. So my family, especially my dad's side of the family who lived in El Campo, they witnessed a lot of yeah, a lot of death and a lot of violence at that time. No, of course. And that war period, everyone, it lasted up until 1992. And that if anyone really wants to have a better understanding of what went on during that wartime, I highly suggest, and I know we've talked about it, you've seen this movie too, um, Voces Inocentes, mm -hmm. and it just shares the experiences of a young boy who lived through that civil war. And it was so interesting because I, I know, I, I believe I brought it up to you like one time, Valerie, when we did talk mm -hmm. in the past. And the, the person that, ex, that produced the movie, um, Voces Inocentes, he, it went exactly by his experiences. So he had also shared that while he was, you know, directing and producing the movie, there were times he had to take a step back and, and like bring himself back together because he would get a lot of flashbacks mm -hmm. about that time, especially when creating a film. Mm -hmm. And once again, I just want to acknowledge the fact that I think it is a empowering and beautiful thing that you are bringing your culture into your dissertation because a time 
like that that happened in Central America, El Salvador specifically with the Guerra Civil, it needs to be recognized. And I feel like more people will be able to recognize it even more when they start to read or find amazing research articles like yourself that talks about the Salvadorian background and culture and whatnot. So I wanted to hear your thoughts. What do you think of representation overall, like your ideas on it and whatnot? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I will say that in terms of the Salvadorian American story, the Civil War is very central to our experiences. Even those who are children of those who migrated to the U.S. because of the Civil War. But it's not the only part of our story. Like even amidst the civil war like people had joy right people experienced joy and happiness and I think that's something unique about Salvadorans is that even within such a traumatic and horrifying experience we were able to find happiness and joy and and continue living our lives and it's I think emblematic of our resilience and our resilient spirit that translates to who we are now here in the U.S. Wow, that is beautifully said. And I agree 100%. Now, I did also want to ask, since earlier you had also mentioned that you have sisters and whatnot, are they also interested in pursuing a PhD as well? Mm-hmm. No. Well, one of them maybe if I convince mm-hmm. her. But most of my family, my cousins and two of my siblings, they're in finance and like business. So two of my sisters are accountants. One is a certified public accountant here in California. And the other is an accountant for a different company. And then um, so background, I have twin sisters. They're the youngest of the four of us. One of them is in accounting and the other one, she's finishing her bachelor's degree in psychology and she's thinking about either pursuing a degree in social work or in marriage and family therapy. So she's the one who I'm trying to convince to maybe do a PhD in psychology instead, but ultimately it's her decision. No, of course. And because it's obvio you are the Latina grad guide expert. Do you do you see that they a lot of times they tend to come to you for guidance in mm-hmm. regards to academia and career wise? Because I, I know we've also shared before um, we started to hit record that you did receive work experience in the professional field before continuing to pursue a PhD. Mm-hmm. I'd say that the my sister who's interested in pursuing um, like a social work or marriage and family therapy graduate degree, she does come to me with questions about applying to graduate school, how to prepare, how to ask her professors for personal offer letters of reference and how to shape her statement of purpose. But my other sister who's in accounting, she goes to my sister who's in accounting, my other sister for guidance. That's amazing. I love that. So it's an entire support system just coming together to continue to uplift one another. And I think that's amazing. Now, where, where do you, where do you find yourself as you continue to grow with Latina Grad Guide? Like, where do you see it still going? Do you ever see it turning into a nonprofit one day? Do you ever see it as it continuing to be your content creation platform? Like, where do you see it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, 
I'm a firm believer of speaking things into existence. So I will share that my hope is to establish a nonprofit organization. And that was always the goal from the beginning. And the social media platform was just a piece of that. And the website was just a piece of that. So I'm actively working towards that goal. And my plan is by the beginning of next year to have something official We'll see um, because I am a PhD student and I'm also working. So there are a lot of moving pieces, but that is the goal. No, of course. And speaking of a working student, what kind of tips could you give students that are trying to decide if right after their bachelor's or master's degree, do they con- should they consider going to a PhD or get work experience mm-hmm. and then apply? What So what kind of tips would you like to share about that? Mm-hmm. If you're a student who is 100% certain that they want to pursue a PhD or a master's degree or go to law school, I say go for it. Like, you shouldn't let anything stop you from pursuing your dreams. But if you're having reservations or you're not sure what discipline you're interested in most or what type of program you want to pursue, then I think taking a year or two off might be beneficial, especially to get some work experience or even to do some self-evaluation or like some um, personal growth during that time. But I definitely think that if you feel ready and you're really passionate about going to law school, for example, then go for it. No, of course. And I also wanted to ask, based on your experiences and prior knowledge, how effective do you think it is to take a gap year off to also study for the GRE or LSAT? Mm-hmm. I think that taking a gap year is kind of like a luxury, right? Like not everyone has the opportunity to take a gap year. Some of us are forced to take a gap year because of maybe you're not sure what you want to do after graduation. Um, But I do think it can be an effective time or a very important year for you to, like you said, study for the GRE or the LSAT to get your application materials prepared, to do research about the types of programs that you're interested in applying for. So it can be a time used effectively or like a time that you can, again, gather all of your application materials. But I do also think that it could potentially be a luxury for some students to take a break from school. But I wanted to ask, when you were doing a lot of the self-studying, how did you find yourself being able to implement self-care into an effective self-study schedule? Mm -hmm. I don't think I did, (laughs) if I'm being honest. And that's just something that I'm really bad about is incorporating self-care into my routine. Um, So that those like two and a half months that I was preparing for the GRE, I really got limited sleep. I was working full time. Um, So after work, I would stay in my office. I would stay in my office until like 9 or 10 p.m. studying for the GRE. And then I would drive back home, which was about like 40 minutes without traffic away from where I lived. And so that was a very hard time for me. Um, those two and a half months studying for the GRE, but it was worth it. No, of course. And I find it so interesting when you said you would study in your office, Mm -hmm. because when I was preparing to take these exams, I was, I would actually after work hours study at the diner I was hosting slash waitressing in Mm -hmm. because sometimes 
even though you love your home so much, at least for myself, I can find myself right after work. When I come home, I just want to relax. So I tend to find myself like keeping all the work stuff at work. So then when I come home, it's like, if I still need to get things done, they will get done, but just not more, not in such a pressure, pressure type feeling. What do you think of all that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think when I was living at home, it was hard for me to do schoolwork because your parents don't necessarily understand like what you're doing and um, what, what it means to be a graduate student. So when they saw that I was home, to, to them, maybe it felt like I was done with school and that like I left schoolwork at school and that wasn't the case. And when I was doing my master's program, it was an afternoon slash evening program. So sometimes our classes didn't end until 10 p.m. And because I was working full time as a graduate student, too, um, I could only do homework like when I got home which meant that I was up until like 12 or 1 p.m. And my mom would always tell me like, why are you up so late? You need to go to bed. Like you need to get rest. You have work tomorrow in the morning. So that was challenging. And I think it's still a little bit challenging. My parents don't really understand what it is that I'm doing or why I haven't graduated yet and why I've been in school for like, it seems like forever. No, and I resonate with you on that. In the same way, in the sense where my my guardians, my parents, tios, tias, they'll, they'll ask me, "Are you done yet?" Like not mm -hmm. in a, not in a way to minimize my work, but more in the sense as in, how does this higher education thing work? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't you be done now? It's been a while. But even though they question, they may question a lot, and they may just you know want you to just be with them and be really really present. At the end of the day, I do feel that they still support us, you know, even though mm -hmm. it may be so something so foreign to them, because if it was foreign to us, just imagine for them. What do you think, my dear? Yeah, I think our parents are so proud of us. And like I mentioned earlier, our parents aren't familiar with higher education, at least not a lot of them here in the U.S. And so to me, it just means that I have to do a little bit of work explaining to them what it is that I'm doing and why it is that it's taking me so long and why a PhD program is five to seven years, which to them seems so crazy because I've been in school for so long. Um, and sometimes I'll be honest, it, it is frustrating when you have to can, like keep explaining yourself and like keep explaining what it is that you're doing but ultimately that's the only way our parents will become familiar with our work and I agree a hundred percent where I've also found myself tend to get a little frustrated where I've shared this story a lot and mm -hmm. they'll also ask what are you going to do with the PhD and then mm -hmm. I explain but it, their biggest the biggest thing they want to know is will you be able to have a career after this mm -hmm. And what else do you plan on doing with it? So mm -hmm. even though I, sh I, can, I can agree with you where sometimes it can feel frustrated, when I feel in the moment, I just take a step back and remind myself, this is just their way of showing that they're interested and they care and they just want to know you that we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. Especially since a lot of our, our parents from the Latinx culture 
they just know work, get married, and familia. Like, have a familia, keep going from there. So when they see us at, like, past our mid-20s, they wonder, wait, why don't you have babies yet? Well, <laughs> our degrees are kind of our babies, if you think about it, because of all the mm -hmm. time we put into it, all the energy. So it really is foreign to, to all of us. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because my mom is the same way. Like she has told me on numerous occasions, I've had dreams of you and you had a baby. And when are you going to get married? And when are you going to give me grandchildren? But my dad is actually the opposite. He always tells us, you know, um, finish school, start a career and then start a family and don't feel pressured to start a family right away. Do it on your own time. So I really appreciate that about my dad. And it's funny, I think both like my mom and my dad balance each other out because my mom is the one who's like, have babies already. And my dad's like, don't listen to your mom. And I, I love that the fact that they have two different perspectives because mm -hmm. my parents also have the two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. But like you said, it definitely brings a balance. And it's so interesting that you also have shared that your dad says, finish school. You can have kids when the time comes because um, so I work as an ELD teacher as well. And mm -hmm. <laughs> my fellow coworkers that um, they're they're either paraspecialists or they have the same position as me. The, when I told them that I'm interested in still pursuing towards my PhD once I'm done with the credentials and master's, and it's pretty much going to happen, just mm -hmm. like how you said, speaking into existence. Mm -hmm. And right away, just like how your dad tells me, they're like, okay, don't have kids yet. Don't <laughs> get married yet. Just get that done because life is such a beautiful thing. So there's going to be time for you to do the married and the have kids part. But if you want your PhD, Stay on the route you're at. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many people give the same advice to men. Like, I think it's women who are always the ones who are told, oh, um, don't have kids yet. Try to establish your career first. Or we're always prompted to think about what our career choices mean for family planning. Whereas I don't think we do that to men. That is a very interesting thought. And I, mm -hmm. I honestly haven't thought of it in that perspective. Wow. I'm just really mind blown. Mm -hmm. And that's a very good cliffhanger question to leave our gente with. Mm -hmm. Now, mi gente, before we conclude this episode, I just wanted to ask you, Valerie, if you could give anyone one piece of advice, whether it be about academia, whether it be about careers, just lifestyle, whatever advice it may be, what would you share? My advice to anyone who is working towards a goal, any goal, is to believe in yourself and don't compare yourself to others. We all have our own individual journeys and that's what makes life exciting. I know it may sound cliche, but dream big. You have a community of strong mujeres cheering you on. All right, mi gente, so that concludes our last interview episode for season two of Cafecito con Estrellita. Now, just as I mentioned before, we're not going anywhere. We're just doing the work that needs to get done behind the scenes to then come back with a season three that has just shown so much growth. Because trust me, from season one to season two till now going into season three, so much 
growth has happening and is continuing to happen. And I just appreciate all your support and your wonderful listening ears, mi first gen gente. Now, before we officially just click off of this episode, I just want to remind you if you can please subscribe, review, and just support this podcast on any platform that you use, on any social media that you can find us on, Cafecito con Estrellita, because it would mean the world to me and my little intern, aka my sister. And uh, I just can't wait to talk to you all again very, very soon. Have a good one, mi gente.